Underscore's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined on this first episode of 2024, the 324th overall episode of Pound the Rock, by my esteemed co-host, Joe Wolfond. New Year's resolutions, baby. 80 minutes or less. We're doing it. We're doing it, <laughs> yeah. Cash, right? Yeah. Again, as I just joked before we went uh, live, I guess you mean before the break. Uh, let's let's see if we can do this. 80 minutes total. All right, I mean, we, we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today because we've gone two weeks without a show. Our main topic is going to be digging into the early returns of that mammoth Knicks-Raptors trade that happened kind of smack dab in the middle of our time off. Um, you know, I was indisposed that day. Wolfon, you were literally on a ski hill when the news broke. I, I spoke to you on the phone, so... Neither one of us was in any sort of uh, situation where we could have even tried to podcast. Uh, I ended up writing about the trade in the Score app the following day. Hope everyone's had a chance to read that. But this is our first time convening for a pod since then. So we figure a little late to do just a straight up you know, trade breakdown or analysis. But I think the way we can look at it is like some early returns from both teams playing two games. And to be honest with you, because I think so many of the early returns are actually very bang on with what at least I already wrote about them, and I'm pretty confident with what you kind of envisioned for the trade anyway. It'll almost be like a trade breakdown uh, going through those early returns, but we're going to do that as the, the main topic of our show after the break. Before we get to that, we have a few things that I wanted to touch on, or I guess you could say a few teams that I thought were worth uh, talking about as we start this new year, and I guess we can start with the Warriors, because they're the freshest in my mind after they blew an 18-point lead in the final seven minutes of a home game against Denver last night, which ended on a Nikola Jokic buzzer beater from just inside half court. No one does circus daggers like the Joker, uh, who, by the way, is 39 of 44 from the field over his last four games and 4 of 4 from deep and 10 of 11 from the free throw line. But anyway, this is going to be Warriors talk, not Nuggets talk. The reason I wanted to bring up the Warriors before that game was even played was because in the latest, I guess, page of this dynasty's final chapter, Clay Thompson a few nights ago opened up about a recent conversation he had with Steve Kerr where Kerr implored him to enjoy this final chapter of his career, to be a better mentor for Golden State's youngsters, to bring less negative energy to the mix and to be less preoccupied with stats and accolades. Look, after a brutal start, Clay's been pretty good recently, back up to almost 38% from deep, but he's averaging less than 20 points per game for the first time in 10 years, less than 17 points per game for the first time since his sophomore season. He's taking his least amount of shots per game since his rookie season 12 years ago, also as low as usage rate in a decade. Wolfon, what are your thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on this conversation? Clay Thompson alluded to with Steve Kerr. Do you have any shot thoughts on Clay's performance or his role in this offense and going forward at this stage of his career? General thoughts on the Warriors. Love to hear them. I mean, the sort of shot selection hand wringing with Clay always makes me laugh a little bit because it's the same as it's ever been. Like, this has always been what Clay Thompson's shot selection has, has looked like, but obviously people are going to be less forgiving of it when fewer of those shots are going in. Now, you mentioned he is still shooting 38% from deep. I think it's a little bit more the inside the arc stuff that has 
gone sideways. And it's not like he's ever been like an elite two-point scorer, but he's just not getting to the rim at all anymore. And that's sort of been a team-wide issue for the Warriors. And there's just like not nearly as much dynamism to his game in terms of like space creation. And I think they're there's good reason why people would be frustrated with him at this point, even if they are able to acknowledge the stage that he's at in his career, the injuries that he's overcome. Um, and and I'm, I would say maybe it's not even so much frustration with Clay as it is with Steve Kerr's unwillingness to maybe play some of the younger guys ahead of him in spite of some of the struggles that we've seen. I, you mentioned like he's played better lately. I totally agree with that. Um, and I think, you know, defensively, right? Like he's not a defender who you want to stick on like a quick guard at this stage of his career. Lately, I feel like they've mostly just been having him guard power forwards and he's actually looked pretty good doing that comparatively. So like, I think you could argue on the other side of it that if the Warriors are going to do anything this year, they need to be able to get more out of clay. And so from that perspective, Steve Kerr continuing to, to play him like almost like write him in and pen in the Warriors rotation and in closing lineups and then do what he can to sort of nudge him back into a positive frame of mind and maybe get the best out of him that way makes sense. And it's, I I think for me, it, it just like hits on something that I think about a lot, which is when it comes to coaching, there's so much that we don't see and don't know. And like these softer coaching skills are so important and something like this, I feel like hammers that home where like, you know, coaches get nitpicked to death in terms of like substitution patterns and rotations and defensive schemes and out of timeout plays and things like that. But something like this, something that requires a sort of softer touch where like you got to know and have a, a certain level of trust built in with the player to know that you can say something like that to them. To say, like, this is the last stage of your career. You're bringing negative energy and you, like, you need to figure out how to enjoy it and make it, like, a more positive workspace for your teammates. Uh, and to know that you're going to get the right kind of response from that, like, that stuff's really important. And, I mean, this is, like, not relevant, but I'll just add to that because it does feel like Kerr is getting raked over the coals right now for a number of reasons. You know, both the, the rotation and the offensive system. I... I think it's a little bit overboard and honestly kind of crazy. Like Kerr to me is still very much one of the best coaches in the league for both of those reasons, for like the interpersonal stuff, a lot of which we don't know about, but some of which we do find out about obviously. Um, And also the X's and O's where like, I mean, you can argue that it's not, I mean, you don't have to argue it. It's a fact that it's not working as well with the current Warriors team because the talent just isn't what it was. But like his offensive system and his defensive system, frankly. And I know there have been assistants who have been a big part of both of those things, but like that's completely revolutionized the way the basketball is played. Like you, yeah. there, were, there were no teams that were like running split action you know, when the Warriors started doing it like eight or nine years ago. And now you watch a game, it's like every single team is doing that all the time. Um, and like, okay, like did Draymond allow the Warriors to be revolutionary defensively? Did Steph allow the Warriors to be revolutionary offensively? Of course. But, I, like, Kerr still had to 
bring his tactical acumen to bear in order to make that happen. So I just think it's a little overboard and I'm not saying there aren't genuine criticisms of him, but it's like, I don't know, maybe we can like take a step back and realize that what's actually happening to the Warriors right now is sort of like the natural progression of things. I mean, they're outside the play-in right now, right? Like they're 16 and 18 and you look at the teams ahead of them and it's not like there's an obvious candidate to fall out of that mix. You know, like the Lakers are the team they're looking up at in 10th right now. Maybe you could say like the Rockets are, are a good candidate to fall out. I don't know. They look pretty solid to me. The Mavs, I guess, could be that team. But like, it's not like a given that the Warriors are going to go on a run and Dude. even make the play in, let alone the playoffs. Uh, the Jazz in 12th are a half game behind them now. After yeah, winning nine, of, yeah. After winning nine of their last twelve, I was saying this on Twitter. They're doing the reverse Jazz from last season, where they started off looking like the tanker everyone thought they'd be last year, and now they're working their way back into the playing mix. They're at the end of this run. Like I, I don't know that there is anything that can be done from a coaching perspective. I mean, maybe we can talk about from a front office perspective if something can be done in that in that regard, but like. I don't know that anything is salvaging this to the point that like it can be salvaged to the point that they can like make the playoffs, maybe win a series, but like keeping the dynastic window open, I don't really see it. I just think that they're the sun has sort of set on that. And once, once you can kind of like accept and embrace that reality, I feel like it's going to be a little bit easier maybe as a fan of the team uh, to do what Clay Thompson is trying to do and just like enjoy this last chapter of his yeah. career and stop bringing negative energy into your workspace because of the Warriors. Um, no, I'm with you. That's on a hard that. thing for a for a fan of any team to yeah. do, though. Obviously, I'm not like I don't practice what I preach in that respect, so I'm mm-hmm. not actually asking anybody to do that. I'm just saying I think it's important to acknowledge where the Warriors are actually at, rather than sort of trying to place blame somewhere that it doesn't necessarily belong. Yeah, I can speak from experience. I brought a ton of negative energy to uh, my friend's trip once Shohei Otani signed with the Dodgers instead of the Blue Jays. Um, but no, look, I'm with you. And it's something I would want to talk about too, where it's like, okay, you can talk about Clay's attitude and how he's accepting this. The crazy people, I agree with you, that want to question Steve Kerr's coaching, all of a sudden, like, talk about all that. But at the end of the day, all this is, is father time coming for basically everyone on this roster except Steph Curry yet, right? Um, And that's not a knock on this team or those guys. It's just, this is what happens. They've been, they won their first title nine years ago. Like that 67 win season that launched this whole thing. Steve Kerr's first year uh, as head coach of the team was nine years ago. This is the 10th season of that run. And they were good for a few years before that, too. They were playoff games. Like, we're talking about over a decade together of being at least a playoff mainstay and a good team in the West. It wasn't going to last forever. And, you know, even in the case of Clay, like, I feel like everyone's making a big deal of it now because he opened up about this conversation with Steve Kerr. But the funny thing is, there was a point earlier this season when Clay was just coming out of his slump and starting to shoot it better. And I had actually already had it in our podcast notes, and I never got to it, but I still had it as a remnant that, oh, maybe we'll get to at some point this season, where Kerr had a quote earlier this season where he talked about, like, um, like Clay kind of 
playing the right way within the offense and, you know, needing to trust, like, to give it up and then he, he, trust that he would get it back and whatever. And just, like, the way he was talking about Klay Thompson, I remember at the time thinking, like, what? Like, we're talking about Clay Thompson. Like, he's not new here. What, like, if you had just substituted Clay Thompson's name with someone else, you could have believed Steve Kerr was talking about like a new acquisition who had played 10 games with the team and was trying to get acclimated to like their movement heavy system and the way they do things. And like, yeah. So Ke- then Kelly Oubre. Right. You know, like, so then to hear Clay now months later talk about this conversation he had with Kerr, to me, just brought it full circle. It was like, yeah, like this was. Uh, probably a needed conversation, but also don't think there's much more to it other than just like, look, Clay is not the player he once was, and that's understandable. And the Warriors are far from the team they once were, and that's understandable too, even with Steph Curry still being brilliant. And like, this is just the natural order of things. I get why, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not at all taking away from the fact that Clay Thompson's a proud champion, a five-time All-Star, a future Hall of Famer, who's come back from two devastating injuries to comp- become a key component on another championship team. So I can understand why he would have a hard time adjusting to any kind of lesser role and maybe find it hard to enjoy this final chapter. But, you know, as Steve Kerr told him, he really should find a way to because I don't, I'm not breaking any news here, but, like, it's not going to get better. <laughs> you know, you, he might have good stretches here and there, and he's still going to be a productive player, I think. But, like... No, he's not just gonna suddenly become 2016 Clay Thompson again. Like that's not how it works. So, yeah. But I, even it, even on top of like the, the the sort of natural aging curve and that like all of the things bound up in Father Time that are conspiring to drag this team down. If Andrew Wiggins is the Andrew Wiggins of two years ago, and if Draymond Green is playing right now rather than serving a suspension for punching a dude in the face a couple weeks after choking a guy and if Gary Payton the second could stay on the court for more than like 20 minutes at a time without suffering another lower body injury like things could still look a lot different for this team so there have been a, some other you know unfortunate mitigating circumstances that haven't helped uh, on top of just like the the natural aging stuff and like look in a lot of ways, I agree that it would probably behoove the Warriors to, like, scale down Clay's role a little bit. But I think that's, like, an incremental type of change. Like, even – he's still so important to the functioning of their offense, even when he's not knocking down shots because of the gravity that he has. Like, he allows so much of that to work. And I don't know, like, would would it make more sense to just put the ball in Steph's hands more often because – the off-ball stuff with him isn't as dynamic, isn't working as well as it once did. I mean, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, but I just think ultimately they're they're hampered by circumstances and personnel more than anything. Yeah. And I did want to touch on, too, the fact, like you mentioned the interpersonal stuff that head coaches and clearly Steve Kerr has to manage as well. And it's like, you can listen to literally any coach in the NBA who's ever coached and spoken to the media. They all early on in their tenures, in their head coaching careers, talk about how they've had to learn how to manage like the non-coaching part of the gig because there is so much that goes into it, especially in the modern age when you've got like 20 assistant coaches, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but like you got a ton of assistant coaches, a ton of people to manage outside of the players themselves, let alone the fact that a big part of the actual coaching is 
managing the egos and the relationships and the interpersonal dynamics of a locker room. Like a lot goes into it. And that's why, I mean, not that I'm the only one who says this, but that's why I always say, look, look, you could be either a good X's and O's guy or a good motivating type coach and end up being a good coach just by checking one of those boxes really well. You can be a good coach for a long time. Maybe you don't stay forever, you know, in one spot because that's hard to do. But the truly great coaches are the ones that check both boxes. And those are the ones that end up usually becoming like franchise icons because they stick around long enough. You can look at Pop, Spo, Steve Kerr himself, because, you know, there might now be an assistant coach that tells you how many fouls a guy has or how many fouls a team has and an assistant coach looking at challenges and an assistant coach that's kind of like an offensive coordinator and one that's kind of like a defensive coordinator and one that's tracking things like hustle stats in the game and all this. But at the end of the day, none of those guys are going to be able to tell Clay Thompson in not so subtle terms, like, you know, kind of get to the end here, Clay, like maybe dial it back a bit with the negative energy, you know, like that's going to fall on the head coach. And uh, Steve Kerr has for the better part of a decade now proven that he's the rare you know, brilliant X's and O's mind that is also capable of doing that. And so kudos to him. Yeah. And I mean, there is a small silver lining in all of this, which is that at least there is this sort of young core that is making a case for more playing time over the old guard right now. And apart, like there were, there have been glimmers of that, like pool for a a point in time looked like he was going to be that bridge to the future. Wiseman, not for a very long point in time, really just from like the moment he was drafted until he like stepped foot on the court for his first game, looked like he would be part of that bridge. And in spite of both of those guys now being shipped out, like Wiseman for GP2 and Poole for Chris Paul, who's hanging on, like he's he's still giving them productive minutes. But like, in spite of those two pieces not working out, like there's something of a bright future percolating, right? Like I think Kaminga's looked really good lately. Uh, Pajemski, like what a story he's been as a rookie. And he is like now a mainstay in the rotation in a way that Moody obviously is not, but like Moody has made a case for more minutes when he's gotten a little bit of leash. Um, and, and Trace Jackson Davis, like late second round pick looking like one of the more sort of dynamic rim rolling big men that they've had. It's, that that's like the silver lining in all of this is like there's a, a universe in which they could start building towards something. But again, it's like that they have to balance that, I guess, against their potential desire to keep winning now around Steph. And if they were to make, you know, if they wanted to go out and get like a Pascal Siakam, well then at least a couple of those players are going out the door. So yeah. they're in a tough spot as they try to figure out which way to go. All right, sticking with a washed former champion in the Pacific Division, uh, let's talk about the Los Angeles Lakers. But let's do it a lot quicker than we just did about the Warriors. Let's try to do this in five minutes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a bit of a spiel here, give you the news, and then I want your thoughts on it. Um, so the Lakers are back under 500. They're 17 and 18 after three straight losses. Their latest defeat saw them lose by 14 at home to a Jimmy Butlerless Heat team. After the game, head coach Darvin Ham said the team can't find consistency until they get healthy as they're still without Gabe Vincent, D'Angelo Russell, and Rui Hachimura. When he was reminded that Miami was without Butler, Ham said that missing multiple rotation players is more impactful than missing your big dog. Of course, as so many have gleefully pointed out on Twitter since then, the Heat were also missing Caleb Martin and Haywood Highsmith. If you've kind of watched Ham's postgame pressers progress over the course of the season, 
you are seeing kind of like an increasingly defensive coach who's feeling the, and I mean defensive as in like defending himself, not defensive in like my defensive minded on the court. Um, a guy who's like feeling the pressure and is smart enough to know that his seat is getting warm despite winning the in-season tournament just a month ago. And then sure enough, on Thursday, Shams Charania and Joe Van Buha citing six sources with direct knowledge of the situation. They specified six different sources told them this, that there's a deepening disconnect between Ham and the Lakers locker room, mostly stemming from Ham's repeated tinkering with the starting lineup and rotation. He's used 10 different starting lineups, including three different ones in the last three games. The Athletic Report also cited a recent decision to bench D'Angelo Russell and leave LeBron without a secondary handler, uh, ball handler, in the starting lineup as a head scratcher. Uh, Reeves, I've said all along, I thought should have been in over Reddish. He's now in for Russell, but Russell's also out. So right now it's uh, Reeves, Prince, Braun, AD, and Reddish. Um, Look, to be fair, I, I don't know how much of the blame Ham really deserves here. I know you mentioned early in the season you thought their offense looked unimaginative. It is 24th right now in efficiency. A team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis has the seventh worst offense in the league. I, I thought he had a really good first year, and not just because of the ultimate results. Like I thought in general over the course of the season, he did some nice stuff. I thought even early last season when they were scuffling, it had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with the fact the roster made zero sense around LeBron and AD, and once they gave him a sensible roster, I thought he did really good work with it. This year, obviously, it hasn't played out that way, and I think everyone thought building off last season with a similar roster, you add Gabe Vincent, who I know has been hurt, but still, that they'd be at least that good, if not better, and it just hasn't been the case. And like, we talked early in the season about how, you know, on one hand, they had survived a stretch of poor play and really troubling underlying metrics to still be a 500 team. And maybe that was a good indicator. But on the other hand, LeBron and AD had basically pristine health and they were still only a 500 team. So I don't know, man, like this might just be what this team is, a 500-ish team. Because even if you look at 781 minutes with both LeBron and AD on the floor this season, they're only plus 1.8 per 100 possessions. And this is something we've talked about the last couple of years, like, when this team is built well about around LeBron and AD, they dominate when both those guys are on the court. They did it their championship season. They did it the year after, even though they got uh, derailed by injuries. And they did it again in the second half of last season when they built a better supporting cast around those guys. Usually dominant with both of them on the court. What we're seeing through the first half of this season is more in line with those couple years when Rob Palenka lost his mind and built just the dumbest teams around them. They're barely winning the minutes with both of them on. So... I don't have much to say that I haven't already said. Wolfon, the floor is yours. Do you understand the frustration with Darvin Ham's lineup tinkering? Do you think he's justified in that lineup tinkering? How much of the blame is on him, and is this team just mid? Man, that's a really difficult one to answer because it's so easy to say from like an outsider perspective that, well, he should be tinkering and like trying to find something that works. I haven't agreed with all of the tinkering. Like I thought the starting lineup with like both Reddish and Vanderbilt in there just made no sense. Like it was very clear that there wasn't going to be enough spacing in that lineup for anybody to operate. They're trying to run this like five out offense that is just not, I mean, like they're hamstrung by their lack of shooting. Like that's, that's just the reality. They're 29th and three point attempt rate and 24th and three point percentage. And it's just impossible to overstate how much more difficult that makes everything. So I don't know. Like, yeah, he's trying to find something that works. And I think there are certain things that 
it should have been clear weren't going to work that he could have skipped over. Um, you know, the, the Reeves thing, like I totally understood the idea of splitting him and Russell up, but basically a, like making the ball handling responsibilities a lot clearer for both of those guys, but also like those lineups had gotten shredded defensively. So like that made sense. You could have said Reeves should have been the one starting D'Lo, the one coming off the bench, but like, I, I don't know, like Reeves started to play a lot better when he went to the bench. Hachimura, like, he, he could probably stand to be in the starting lineup. He has been sporadically. Um, my feeling with Reddish has always been, like, he's defended well this year, but he's just, like, a zero offensively. And there have been stretches where he's knocked down shots, but even then, that's basically all he's doing. And if he's not knocking down shots, it's like he's really not giving you nearly enough at the offensive end. And it's not like his jumper gets respected anyway. So the spacing is still a problem. Um, I... I don't have the box score in front of me right this second, but that the game that they lost that you alluded to against Miami, where they scored 96 points, even though Miami didn't have Jimmy Butler. Reddish was scoreless in that game. I think he played like close to 20 minutes, put up one shot and had four turnovers. Like that's insane. Um, So I think, he yeah, Ham is obviously searching, and maybe you could be frustrated that he hasn't like figured out the answers at this point in the season. But again, I think uh, the the offensive issues are just like mostly tied to uh, look uh, like a lack of dynamism on the wing. Like outside of LeBron, you look at their kind of wing situation, and it's like yeah, Reddish, Primps, Hachimura, like. Again, I think Rui's probably been the best of the bunch on balance, but it's not a ton of particularly uh, inspiring names there. So, um, I don't know. Like, what what would you say the answer is? Like, give give more run to Max Christie, see if he can figure it out. Like, he's a he hasn't shot the ball well this season, but he's a theoretical shooter off of movement. You know, maybe Gabe Vincent, whenever he finally gets healthy, will will help solve that issue. Um, I don't know. It's sort of like a little bit like what we were talking about with the Warriors, where it's like you can make tweaks, but I don't know how much more you could actually be getting out of this offense right now. Um, And I think like that game against Miami, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I mean, there were stretches in that game where like LeBron was being guarded by Nikola Jovic and AD was being guarded by Kevin Love and they still couldn't generate efficient offense and like that was the first game I think I've watched this season where it looked to me like LeBron was sort of running on empty like just running out of gas maybe from the the load that he carried early in the season um and so I I feel like that has to be at least a little bit of a concern as well I know a lot of people are kind of piled on him with respect to him saying you know what we can't find consistency till we're healthy I took it more and at least this is the way I see it is like they can't find consistency with their lineups and their rotations until they get healthy. And I know like every team deals with injuries. I'm not saying that's an excuse for their disappointing season, but like with respect to the lineups, I mean, you, it is easier to find consistency with a lineup and with a rotation when you're mostly healthy and you don't have guys like Gabe Vincent comes back, gets hurt again. Hachimura has been in and out with injury. Like now Russell's hurt. Like, Obviously, most coaches also don't have the benefit of having LeBron James and Anthony Davis, so fair point there, but I I kind of understand the tinkering. Again, I don't agree with all the decisions far from it, but I do understand him searching for something because the team really hasn't given him a reason to stick with any like many of these lineups. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, I just had to say to our previous conversation, about five minutes ago, Shams Charanya posted an article about Jonathan Kaminga uh, saying, after sitting the final 18 minutes of the Nuggets loss, Warriors forward Jonathan Kaminga has lost faith in Steve Kerr and no longer believes that Kerr will allow him to reach his full potential. I haven't read it yet, so I don't know how many sources were cited. I don't know if it was six or less, but um, that's uh, maybe an interesting counterpoint to what we were saying before about Kerr's you know, personal touch and uh, his ability to massage relationships because it feels like this one has gone sour. So I guess if the Warriors are looking to make a win-now trade, then like there's probably the piece that's going out the door. Yeah, uh, I should have uh, added the caveat when talking about Steve Kerr's interpersonal management. Uh, you had to have been born in the 20th century. Anyone born in the 21st century, it doesn't apply to you. Um, oh, well, that's interesting. You could see uh, Mike Dunleavy. <clears throat> Is Mike Dunleavy picking up the phone and calling Messiah Jerry? Maybe a topic for another day. All right, on a uh, more positive note, after talking about disappointing teams in San Francisco and Los Angeles. The New Orleans Pelicans. How about them Pelicans? They always make me look foolish whenever I start showing any faith in them. The last time being when they followed up wins over the Nuggets, Mavs, Kings, and Clippers with back-to-back losses to the Mark and less Jazz. But here we go again. They just handed the West-leading Wolves only their second home loss in a dominant victory in which Zion Williamson was the best player on the court. It was their fourth win in a row. They're 21-14, and 14, sixth in the West. They have the eighth best point differential just behind those Wolves. Top seven defense, middle of the pack offense. But as we've discussed off air, like they've done all this and Zion really hasn't hit his stride yet. Like it feels like they've done all this and they still have much more to give. I don't know. I mean, one positive, like when it comes to Zion, he has played 29 of 35 games. And I will know there's a great stat found it because William Guillory of The Athletic cited it uh, in a recent feature he wrote. But the trio of Zion, Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum played more minutes together in December than they had played in their previous time together combined over like a year and a half. So, you know, all positive indicators there. But uh, yeah, Wolf on thoughts. How how good is this team? Uh, I guess one negative to add, Trey Murphy is currently out with uh, knee tendonitis after, if you remember, he had come back from having his meniscus repaired in that knee. So troubling stuff there. But uh, yeah, Wolf on. How good is this team? How much do you believe in them? Or are they kind of what they've seen? Where it's like, yeah, they get hot, then they get cold, and they balance out to like a team that's a six this set. Like, you know, maybe make the playoffs proper, maybe a playing team. Do, do they get cold or do they just get injured? Like, I, I think when they've been close to fully healthy, they've been pretty damn good over the last couple of years now. So I just feel like it, it's always going to come down to health with this team. Like, that's going to be the big question mark. I think what we've seen on the court has been really encouraging. And to your point, yeah, Zion has not looked, I, I don't even think really even close to peak Zion. But I do think in terms of like the, the more proactive passing and also like the defense, which to me has started to come around in the last couple of weeks, you can point to that and say whether he's just like directing more energy and intent into those areas of the game, or I don't know, like maybe he just doesn't have the explosiveness to be that peak Zion in terms of like 
getting, you know, getting to those lefty layups over and over and over again at any cost, even though he still does it quite a lot. Um, if, like, if he's going to bring it the way that he's brought it the last few games on defense, I almost don't care that much. Like, I, him and Ingram, frankly, like, watching that Timberwolves game, was it last night or two nights ago? Two nights ago. They played Um, the Clippers tonight. Yeah, that'll be a really, really fun test for them. I mean, they've been playing a soft schedule. Like, that's part of the reason they've been racking up these wins. But, like, they go into Minnesota and beat the Wolves for, I think that might have been only the second home loss of the season for, for the Wolves. So, I thought that was really impressive. And in particular, I think what stood out to me in that game was Zion and Ingram on like the back line of the defense making really, really strong low man rotations. Like Ingram made one that blew up a lob to Gobert. He made another one where he stepped in and took a charge on Gobert. Zion had a massive block of Edwards at the rim. And it's like, if those two guys are bought in and bringing it defensively, that's just like a huge first step. And this team, look, I still think they're getting a little bit lucky uh, because they're not a great rim protecting team. Like just statistically, they're they're one of the poorer rim protecting teams in the league. They account for that by making these really aggressive rotations and packing the paint and they give up a ton of threes and teams are still just like not shooting those threes particularly well. They're a very long team. So maybe you give them some credit for that, like their ability to help and recover and actually get good contests up. I'm willing to believe that they have a better than you would expect chance of being in like the top half of the league in like opponent three point percentage. But right now I think they're third, which is just some teams got to finish second, third in opponent three point percentage every year. Um, But I think just watching them, like, and there is a lot of defensive talent on this team, right? Like Herb Jones, as I've said, has been, I think we're like one of the five best defenders in basketball this year. I love Dyson Daniels and his role got squeezed a ton when Trey Murphy was back. Now Trey Murphy's out. So we're seeing a little bit more of Dyson Daniels, Alvarado, absolute pest at the point of attack. Najee Marshall, really smart team defender. Like they have the defensive talent. If they get that kind of effort on that end from, from Zion and Ingram, then it just makes a huge difference. And I I think like Valanciunas has been doing his thing too. And he's like playing up at the level of the screen quite a bit as well, which necessitates some of those like low man rotations that we're talking about, but he's been doing his job. It just feels like it's kind of clicking right now. And so offensively, like, again, we talked on our last episode when we were talking about who's a title contender, we did, uh, neither of us had the Pelicans, but I had the Pelicans kind of on the bubble, basically saying with Trey Murphy back, it feels like they might have the requisite spacing to actually get into this conversation. They're still on the low end of like three point volume and three point percentage, but they also have this ability to, even without the benefit of a ton of three point shooting, and you see this when Trey Murphy's out of the lineup and they really just can't space the floor. You go up against a defense that's like designed to protect the rim, and Zion can still sort of go through guys and score there. Or you have a defense that's like playing drop and it's designed to force you into mid range shots. And Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum can walk into those mid-rangers and tear that coverage up. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they're they're designed almost in a way to, like, overcome some of their limitations just because of, like, the level of tough shot making on the interior and in the mid-range and on the perimeter in some cases. 
So I don't know, man. I have a I have a certain measure of faith in what the fully healthy version of this team can do. I, I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree. I guess my question though is like, you know, do we see that fully healthy? Because again, even with Trey Murphy, like you mentioned, when when he's in there, you think they might have the requisite amount of spacing and shooting to nudge into that at least fringe contender conversation. But as I mentioned off the top, like he's already, you know, since coming back from recovering from knee surgery, he's now already back on the shove. Like, not that it's long-term, but it's tendonitis in the knee, like eh, concerning, right? Like, and that's kind of the story of this team. Like to no one's fault for whatever reason, they just can't stay healthy. And like, they need Trey in there if they want to be anything more than just kind of like, Oh, a cool playoff team. Like, yeah. I just want to make a quick point about CJ too, though, because I, I, have, I remember having this conversation about the Pelicans last year when we were bemoaning their lack of three-point volume, and, and CJ was one of the guys who was like supposed to be providing it who wasn't at that time. And I think part of it was like he was playing with the ball in his hands more than I thought he should have been, and that was leading to a lot of pull-up mid-rangers as opposed to like the catch-and-shoot threes that he could have been getting playing off the ball more. And I think we're seeing a way better balance with him this year, where now over half of his shots are threes, which is, I think, like where his three-point attempt rate should be. They can still rely on him to create with the ball, either as like a you know a primary initiator or a second-side attacker. But I think it's a better on- and off-ball balance, and he's more so like playing off of Zion and Ingram in a way that I think is benefiting him and the team as a whole. So I think that's that's been helpful. And um uh, yeah, again, I'm I'm excited to see how they fare against the Clippers because the Clippers are also rolling right now. So that'll maybe give us a better idea of where this team is actually at. Yeah, I, I do wonder if at any point in our lifetime we'll ever see the New Orleans Pelicans win the three-point math battle. Right now they are uh, well, they're just minus, like minus 4.8. Yeah, they're not designed that way. I, I, sir, they've had years in the past where they were like, like – being outscored by t- double digit points from behind the arc. Yeah. They've got that down to 4.8 points per game this year. Right. And I mean, look, part of it is, as I mentioned, it's like the way they play defense, not just the way they play yeah. offense. Like they don't just yeah. not shoot a ton of threes. They also give up a lot of threes. Yes. So they're sort of playing their own math battle where it's like, you know, we're going to lose a three point battle, but we'll win the battle at the rim. And, you know, I think I, I would have expected their rebounding to be better. Like, with JV and Zion and like, I mean, just like the, the size generally that they have across the roster, I would have expected them to be like one of the best offensive rebounding teams in basketball. Like that's another way that they could tilt the scales in their favor on the math front. And they're not doing that as well as probably they should be. Um, but yeah, they're, they're sort of playing a, a different kind of math game. Then it's like the inverse of the Pacers, right? The Pacers are like, we're going to shoot a ton of threes. We're going to roll out a red carpet to the rim, but we're not going to let you shoot any threes. And that's the math battle we'll play. And the Pelicans are kind of the opposite of that. They're like, yeah. we're going to give you all the threes that you can have, but we're going to kind of like try to barricade the paint. And on the other hand, on the other end, we're going to attack the paint as much as we can. And that's where we're going to win. So in terms of just like picking your battleground, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, it always comes down to personnel, right? You've got to yeah. craft a scheme that fits your personnel. And I don't think the Pelicans are far off in terms of uh, in terms of optimizing things in that regard. Yeah, and ironically enough, uh, the Pacers actually moved up to fifth now, but they were six. I was going to say, ironically enough, you know, completely different paths to so far the same place, both teams in that 
kind of fifth, sixth range. Uh, and I don't mean that on, as a knock. I think for the most part, both teams are getting the most out of what they have right now. Um, all right. Let's take a break. Come back and talk about that trade. The Raptors made a trade, Wolfon. They did it. Let's go. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, let's talk some early returns from what has thus far been, by far, the biggest mid-season trade of this year. We'll see what happens between now and the deadline. But uh, OG Ananobi, Precious Achua, Malachi Flynn headed to New York, or already in New York. They played two games now. And... Uh, Emmanuel quickly, RJ Barrett, and a second round pick via Detroit that's almost sure to be the 31st selection in this year's draft go to Toronto. As I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, I mean, like, we're doing early returns here, but it might as well just be a trade breakdown because for any of our listeners that did read my day after uh, breakdown of the trade, looking mighty prescient right now. And, you know, not going to toot my horn too much because I think most people would have had the same thoughts I had about this trade from both sides. And I think it's really interesting that through two games, so much of why each team made this move has been evident. Like usually early on, small sample size, you know, maybe a guy that you traded to do X just isn't doing that well because it's a two game sample size and things happen or like whatever. But for the most part, other than the fact quickly floaters haven't fallen at the rate they usually do, um, and RJ's actually shooting really well from deep. But for the most part, I think what you can expect from each team after this trade and the players involved has come to fruition. OG Ananobi fitting in perfectly as we knew he would because he fits seamlessly within any roster construct as a star in his role as an all-world defender and spot-up shooter. Even though we'll say he definitely took his foot off the gas on the defensive end in Toronto this year. Maybe he was checked out. Don't know. Um that the Knicks were able to acquire OG while shedding RJ's contract and breaking up the RJ Barrett-Julius Randle pairing, which, as you know, I've been imploring them to do for a while now, is just icing on the cake to me. Like, I talked about it last season. I talked about it in the playoffs. I talked about it early this season. If you look at the at least the last two seasons, with both of Barrett and Randle on the court, the Knicks were not good and, at best, mediocre. With RJ on and Randle off, they were meh. Last two and a half seasons with Julius Randle on and RJ Barrett off, they've been like crazy good. Plus 11 per 100 possessions last year, almost plus six per 100 possessions this year. And I think you're seeing Randle benefit from a little additional spacing out there as well. In general, just didn't think this team could sniff a championship while paying two guys that are like high volume, poor shooting, prone to tunnel vision kind of guys. Um, so I think you're seeing the benefits there. And uh, yeah, I mean, we we haven't really seen the downstream effects for the Knicks yet in terms of like losing quicklies, um, just that different gear he brought them off the bench and also going from quickly and Barrett to OG, you give up a lot of like creation, ball handling, could come back to bite them in the playoffs if they don't do anything else. Um, so th that's the Knicks side of it. I mean, Achu, like Flynn hasn't played yet. And even when he's there, I can't imagine him playing that much. Achu has played 20 minutes in two games. 
I don't think we've seen anything to suggest he's going to be anything more than the frustrating guy we've known him to be in Toronto. I, like when the trade happened, I saw some people saying, oh, like Tibbs is going to love him because of the defensive versatility and they actually need front court help behind Hartenstein after uh, after Robinson got yeah. But it's like, yeah, you know what Tibbs doesn't like? Bad decision makers, poor decision makers. Like, Yeah, no, Tib- Tibbs likes guys he can trust. Exactly. That's not Precious Chua. So before we get to the Raptors side of it, which I think for us and for most of our listeners is what they want to hear us talk about. Things I've said about the Knicks, you have anything to add? Anything you've seen that's maybe surprised you? Uh, surprised me? No. I mean, I guess I wouldn't have expected OG to be a plus 54 in his first 69 minutes in a Knicks uniform, but uh, he's done what I expected him to do and surely what the Knicks expected and hoped he would do, which is just like take on the toughest defensive assignments. Like in that first Minnesota game, First, it's Edwards, and then it's Cat, right? Like, he can shuttle between those types of players and do whatever is really needed of him in any kind of defensive assignment. I think one of the questions I had and continue to have, you know, speaking of the idea of Precious not being a particularly trustworthy player, one that may very well find himself in Thibodeau's doghouse sooner than later because of the aforementioned decision-making struggles that he has, the fact that Mitchell Robinson's on the shelf, done for the season. Uh, Jericho Sims is on the shelf. Hartenstein's been great, but this is not Tibbs' MO, right? But at any point, do we see him push the OG at center button? Or, or you know, You know who the Knicks play tonight? And, uh, who do they play tonight? They play the Philadelphia 76ers. And wh- mm. which MVP caliber big man has OG Anunoby actually kind of held his own against? Well, bo- actually both of them because he's done it against Jokic and Embiid. But I mean, I think that what was really interesting, well, there are a lot of interesting things about the trade from the Knicks perspective, but one interesting aspect of it is just the way that it sort of rebalances things or shifts their strengths. Like for the last couple of years, the they've been really dominant with their bench units, right? And like their starters have actually kind of struggled. And what that, what this move did is like weaken their bench, like quickly their best bench players out the door. And I think now they're sort of limited in terms of creation off of the bench, but it makes their starting lineup make so much more sense. And I think if you're thinking about them as a playoff team, that's probably the more important consideration especially if you consider what quickly looked like in the playoffs last year. Um, You know, OG, he's just going to be such a big help. And like, I I don't know how much credence there actually ever was to these rumors about him wanting a bigger offensive role. I think like our pal Blake Murphy has mentioned that that was overstated and maybe more uh, clutch agency uh, shenanigans than it was actually like coming straight from OG's mouth. But I mean, his usage rate was 18% this year in Toronto through two games with New York. It's 14%. I think the appeal of him in New York instead of RJ Barrett is less about what he can do with the ball in his hands and more about what he can do without having the ball in his hand, (laughs) which is like stay out of everybody's way, not over dribble space, the floor, and then make a colossal impact at the other end. So it's just, he's a much, much, much better fit with the starters for all of those reasons. And like we've seen that bear out through two games. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, was it Jake Fisher who reported the day of the trade that when OG held meetings with prospective new agents in the summer that 
like an increased offensive role. It's actually one of the things he cited as wanting, but uh, no, I, I mean, I'm with you and, and uh, with kind of Blake's theory that I feel like it was probably overblown and I feel like he's smart enough to know kind of where his bread is better. And again, as I've always said with OG, like this is not the case of a guy where it's like, well, if he can up that offensive usage, like, you know, he'll get more money. It's like this dude's already so good in his role. He might get a max anyway, like in the current role. He doesn't really need uh, higher usage or anything. But anyway, um, look, I, I think the Knicks are probably a better playoff team than they were a week ago. And maybe have some, but even saying that, that they're like, in terms of like being a little more top heavy, I guess they're a better playoff team. But that lack of secondary creation does worry me. Like they don't have like I guess they can try to remedy it with another trade, and and for them that's the big thing. But I don't know. I guess I'm torn on that. Like on, part of me thinks they're better built for the playoffs than they were a week ago because they have a big wing defender. Um, you know their starting lineups much better. It makes more sense. But then the other part of me is like, eh, they really only have one, like one true blue creator now. And like a guy, I really trust to put the ball on the floor and beat someone off the dribble. Yeah. Um, if you think about like, like Randall struggles in the playoffs over the last couple of years, that's definitely, you start to worry a little bit about how much of that is going to fall on Brunson's shoulders for sure. I think the hope has to be that Randall can just be better in the playoffs moving forward. And if again, not, the extra like spacing should help him. It should, yeah. But if he just struggles the way that he has in the last couple postseasons, like none of his other shit really matters. Like they're yeah. not going anywhere in the playoffs as fast. Yeah. Although they did, I mean, they won a series last year. Against a really good casually well. Yeah. So who knows? Um, but yeah, I, I do think, and I mean, Mitchell Robinson was a huge part of that too, right? He's presumably not going to be there this postseason, so. Everybody else probably needs to be that much better. Uh, also, I would say like the, well, maybe not. I don't know. Like the top of the conference looks really strong, but you know, if the Knicks find themselves in a four or five series again, I don't know that they would necessarily be underdogs, but point being, yes, I, I agree. Maybe they're not done, right? Like maybe they're like the deadline's still six weeks away or something like that. So maybe they're out there looking for more shot creation. They obviously should be. Um, but uh, I think, you know, priority one had to be just raising the ceiling. And I think yeah. that meant making a, a move like this that balanced the starting lineup in a more sensible way. Um, I like OG's fit there a lot. Uh, do, you know, do I feel great about the prospect of them, like, potentially giving him a max in the summer? Not especially, but there was also that report out there that he – of all the teams said that he would be willing to take less money from the Knicks if that was the team that he wound up with. So maybe yeah, they could the, get him at something of a discount. From the New York CAAs. Um. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I was thinking when you were when you were talking about that report about him like choosing his representation in the summer, I mean he is isn't his agent Leon Rose's son? Correct. Am I wrong so about that? Uh Leon Rose one used to work for CA. He was like one of their highest profile agents. He's now the president yeah. of the Knicks. His son now works for CAA and is OG Ananobi's agent. Uh, other CAA clients include Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, Hartenstein, Tom Thibodeau. Uh, I believe Julius Randle used to be CAA and isn't anymore. But the point is, there is a big time CAA connection and infiltration there uh, at Madison Square Garden. And this is, I mean, 
you can read about like going back to like the 90s caa has always had great influence um within the knicks and that was before one of their former agents became their team president so yeah, I think I mean I think the Knicks could be pretty confident that OG Ananobi is going to remain in New York unless they like really lowball him, which obviously they're not going to do because they just moved pretty significant assets and players for him. But uh, yeah, whether it's at the max a little less, I don't know, mid to high thirties instead of forty two point six or whatever his max is salary is next year, I think he'll be there long term. I think that's a good thing. The one thing. And like I brought this up in the piece I wrote, it's going to be in an unfiltered video this week too. I've spoken about this before, but like everyone always talks about these Knicks draft picks and I get it. They have eight combined between their own and the extras, but like, I feel like everyone just kind of says, oh, they've got all these picks and no one actually checks. We're like, but what are these picks? And I will remind everyone, like the extra one from Dallas is top 10 protected. The extra one from Detroit is top 18 protected. And I like, even as the protections roll on, it ends up top nine protected. They have one from the Wizards that at worst, sorry, at best is top eight protected. It starts off top 12 protected. Like, these are not shiny need to have them picks that other teams are lining up for. I'm not completely shooing them away. I get it. They are still extra first rounders. They have their own as well, but like, it, it's just not what people think it is. And so anyway, this is a long way of me saying the one thing I'm thinking with them when everyone thinks like, well, like, well this is just the first move. And then the next one is they're going to get the superstar via trade. It's like, I don't know, man, if one of those superstars comes up via like and hits the trade market, I just don't think the Knicks package is the one that's going to get it done, especially now that in my opinion, their best like actual player asset player trade chip in quickly is gone. Even quickly as a pending RFA, I thought was their best non-Brunson trade ship. Well, yeah. I mean, that that is almost certainly the case, given right. the low cap hold that he's going to have and like the advantage that teams have in restricted free agency in terms of retaining him at a potentially below market figure. Like, I think you're pretty much spot on in that regard, but they used it to get themselves a really good player who's For sure. presumably going to be part of the core moving forward. So... I don't think that was a bad use of that. No, no, no. I don't mean it was a bad use at all. Like I said, I think this is a perfect deal for both sides. I'm saying more so when people jump the gun and start saying, well, this is the first move. The next one's going to be the one to get the superstar. It's like, I feel like that has to wait more for like 2025 free agency and not a trade coming soon because I don't think they have the assets to now just randomly turn around after moving quickly bear it like, and just turn around and trade for a superstar now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some thought that the quantity of picks can make up for the lack of quality, uh, which is probably true to some extent. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like everybody, like the star that everyone feels like they're going to chase is Donovan Mitchell. And I think it's maybe less about how attractive their package is than about weighing that against what other teams would conceivably be pursuing Mitchell and I think they might win out just on the basis of like they're one of the few teams that actually is willing to put a bunch of stuff on the table for a dude who if the Cavs are trading him like in the offseason say which you know by all accounts they want to play this out this year at least so if it's the offseason he's got one year left on his deal and he's making it clear that he probably wants to be in New York anyway uh, that, that's going to give them like a pretty big leg up if that's the guy that they decide to pursue. So, yeah. 
Fair enough. Um, all right, let's talk about the other half of this deal. In the short term, uh, a Raptors team that lacked depth turned one legitimate NBA rotation player into two, and they also now have two competent guards. Two competent guards. What a luxury. For the first time in three years, uh, pushes Dennis Schroeder to the bench. Quickly start. I, like The team is just so much more balanced, deeper. And then the long-term impact here is that I think they found the perfect guard pairing for Scotty Barnes and also maybe like the perfect guard for the way they want to play, at least under Darko Ryakovich, with quickly being this like, pardon the pun, but quick guard who can put pressure on the defense, uh, get it moving, can pull up, create for himself, shoot from deep, a good movement shooter, good point of attack defender too. Um, his secondary playmaking, I think, uh, as a secondary playmaker is fine beside a point forward like Scotty. When it comes to the 63 players taking at least four pull-up shots per game, quickly is sixth in effective field goal percentage. Largely bolstered by the fact he's shooting 40% on pull-up threes. You know, also a 41% shooter on catch-and-shoot threes. Combine that with his speed and his ability to attack closeouts and get to that floater range, which as I mentioned... He actually hasn't hit many of those floaters yet uh, as a Raptor, but that is very much his bread and butter range. He's like 76th percentile finisher from there among combo guards, according to Cleaning the Glass. Um, he's just not only exactly what this Raptors team needed in the short term in terms of guard skills, but the perfect type of guard to pair with Scotty Barnes. And you started to see some flashes of that already just in the first two games together. Um, with respect to RJ Barrett, look, I think he's been a little bit better than I thought he'd be. Um, but you're also seeing how the combination of streaky shooting and poor decision making and or limited playmaking vision has kind of hampered him and hurt him so far. The tools and the size are there. I just think I don't know, the results, when you look at the efficiency and stuff, have suggested he's probably not cut out for a primary or even secondary role. And to fit in as something less than that on a good team, think the role Andrew Wiggins filled and found in Golden State yeah, like that's easy to say, but you've got to be a good shooter to fill that role, right? And look, I don't know, maybe that Andrew Wiggins development curve is what's going to happen to RJ Barrett, but Andrew Wiggins was a 33% shooter for the first six years of his career and then miraculously became a 38% shooter in year seven when the Warriors won the title. So, no, no, catch. It was not miraculous. What happened was he stopped taking pull-up threes. He started taking basically exclusively catch-and-shoot threes right. that were all extremely open because of who he was playing with. Like, that's the context right. in which that and, happened. Unless a similar set of circumstances happens for RJ Barrett, which is unlikely, you know, especially the second half of that, then expecting that kind of development curve is wishful thinking. And uh, so you just have to hope he's kind of a, finds a smarter shot selection, fits in in a place that didn't draft him in the top three and doesn't need him to be that. But uh, yeah. That's that's the RJ and quickly side of things. The last thing I wanted to mention before I cede the microphone to you is uh, it's something you actually, I think you pointed out on Twitter. I don't think you said it to me, but uh, about how one kind of negative downstream effect of all this is that with OG gone, it's a little bit more on ball and point of attack defense for Scotty Barnes. And that's not maybe the best thing for the Raptors defense. I thought that actually showed already just in their second game following this trade when you saw Scotty Barnes chasing Desmond Bain around screens and at times guarding him on balls. That is maybe the biggest downside to this deal for the Raptors. Is like Scotty has had this sort of defensive renaissance this year because he's been deployed on the back line of the defense. Because he's been used as like a low man helper, somebody who's quarterback in rotations, and he's been really, really good in that role. 
and he has not historically been particularly good as a point of attack defender. One of my big criticisms of Nick Nurse last year was that he used Scotty way too much at the point of attack when he didn't need to. And now I don't know that I could say the same thing about Darko Ryakovich because he kind of does need to. I mean, maybe you could quibble with that and say, like, you have other options to guard at the point of attack, you know, like quickly. I actually think quickly is sort of the same, even though he's like a like much smaller than Scotty. He's actually much better as like a low man kind of like back of the defense type helper and communicator than he is as like a point of attack stopper. But he's okay, I think, at the point of attack. He's got this like great long wingspan and like he's pretty quick on his feet. So I don't think he's bad. RJ Barrett, like, you know, he's not OG Ananobi, but he can be solid. So I, I think maybe you know, and then Dennis Schroeder, who's coming off the bench now, which is, you know, if you're talking about downstream effects, like that's a big positive downstream yep. effect, is that now your bench PG is Dennis Schroeder and not Malachi Flynn. Like, it's kind of hard to overstate how He's big a, of a difference that makes. Yeah, your bench point guard's a real NBA guard. Yeah. Um, so you have you have options to defend at the point of attack where you don't have to have Scotty Barnes chasing Desmond Bain around necessarily, but it's going to happen a lot more than it's been happening. Like, that's just a fact. And um, I think that's that's one of the clear downsides of this move for the Raptors. But look, it's just a move they had to make straight up. Uh, and quickly, you may recall, we went on the Raptors show a couple weeks before it happened. And this the framework of this deal was almost exactly what we laid out. You were like we were talking about potential trades with the Knicks. I said if I was them, I would target quickly. There was some talk of R.J. Barrett. You said you don't want R.J. Barrett. I was like, I would accept R.J. Barrett as sort of salary ballast in a quickly deal. And lo and behold, here we are. If R.J. can become something more than what he is now, which I do think is possible, then Mm -hmm. that's great. Um, As it is, he just, man, like the the decision-making is just way too inconsistent for my liking. It's like so all over the place. And I actually think he's been, by his standards, pretty good in these first couple of games. But he's still got, I think, like four assists against seven turnovers or something like that. Um, but to, to me, this deal is like just really about quickly. Yes. And you mentioned the shooting. I'll take it back to a conversation we had earlier this season when like comparing, I think we were talking about Cleveland and comparing like stationary shooters to movement shooters and one-dimensional shooters to versatile shooters quickly coming over for the Knicks was like at 39% from three OG going to the Knicks was at 38% from three. That is not an accurate representation of what bringing quickly in, in place of OG does for the Raptors spacing. And you see it already in like the type of ways that they can use him. Like already two or three times they've run this set that you, it's like popularized now, but really it was the nuggets that popularized it where you have Jamal Murray, like setting the back screen for Aaron Gordon at one elbow while Jokic has the ball at the top. And then after setting that back screen and like his defender usually has to bump down to protect against the Gordon cutting to the rim, Murray is jetting up for like a gut DHO and usually pulling a three. And it's like the Raptors didn't have anybody that they could run that play with before. They've already run it a bunch for quickly. And it's like, that's something they're going to have in their playbook. That's going to be super effective. That's one thing, one very small thing. You know, another one you could point to is like, hey, Jakob Pertl kind of looks like a functional part of this roster again, now that there's 
a, a pick and roll point guard that can operate some two man game with him and just like space the floor better when he's off ball. Like that's going to really help as well. This is a guy that you shelled out a first round pick to get and then signed to a four year, $80 million deal. Probably a good idea to make him as serviceable as possible after spending, you know, the first 30 games of the season looking like a square peg in a round hole on a team that didn't really have any offensive utility for him. Um, So yeah, like all all of those things are reasons why it made sense to do this. Uh, And I'll just say, if I was grading this deal in like a vacuum with no context, apart from just like the exact situation that the Raptors were in at the given time that they made it, I would give it like an A or an A minus. But you have to bake in some of the priors and like the reason that the Raptors wound up in this situation where they had to trade one of their best ever homegrown players because they never addressed this clear limitation. And like they had opportunities to do so in the past. You know what I mean? Like I, I love the fact that they got quickly and I do really like his fit with Scotty. And I think he's going to be a, a solid starting point guard there at the least for a very long time. But they put themselves in this situation where they had a guy who was on an expiring contract and was probably not going to re-sign and, you know, was, in spite of what I think about Quickly's upside, probably still the best player in the deal. So I loved it in terms of like, okay, you had a guy that was probably going to walk for nothing in six months. And you managed with very little leverage to turn that into like your potential lead guard of the future. That's a great piece of business. But man, I remember talking early last season when quickly was struggling and there were rumblings that the Knicks weren't necessarily interested in keeping him long-term. I think I was like, man, at the time, Gary Trent and a first round pick maybe could have gotten that deal done. You think? I don't think so, man. It, I know it sounds crazy now, but I'm telling you, like he got off to a really rough start at the beginning of last season and Trent was playing like actually pretty well. So it's hard to remember now. I'm just saying maybe it wasn't that exact deal construction. I just mean they their, their asset management over the last few years has been very poor and the meandering and ill-conceived roster construction project has been ineffective. And all of that has led them to this point where it sounds like now they're going to try and trade Siakam. And I just don't think that they're going to get good value on that type of a trade for him. Like they put themselves in this situation where they had these two guys on expiring deals and just had to sort of take what they could get. And I think they're fortunate that they were able to get what they got from the Knicks. You know, you give them credit for sure for getting a package that made all the sense in the world. But I think you have to ding them a little bit for putting themselves in this situation to begin with because uh, it didn't necessarily have to be this way. Yeah, I, I hear all that. And listen, we've both been super critical of this front office the last two seasons, right? I mean, I've spoken at length about how it had kind of become like paralysis by indecision uh, with this team and and how illogically they were built in a lot of ways the last two seasons. I talked about how they... In my opinion, you know, sent Nick Nurse out there with a hand tied behind his back last season. Did the same thing with Dark Royakovich. They did it to a great championship head coach last year, and then they did it to a rookie head coach this year. I do think the team is a little more sensibly built right now. And to the point about Siakam, 
I do wonder, like, and I know the reports are out there that they'll probably still trade him. They're still, you know, canvassing the market for him. But I do wonder if there's less pressure internally to move him now that one of the UFAs has already been moved. The roster does make more functional sense now. And specifically with quickly replacing OG, and I know you can say, well, RJ technically replaced OG position-wise, and like there's still a bit of a long jam with the forwards. Look, fellow Canadians, I need you to understand, as Wolf on already pointed, like this is the Emmanuel quickly trade, okay? RJ Barrett was salary filler, and until he proves otherwise and earns a place in this team's future, quickly was the priority, and I'm not necessarily thinking of it as like, well, the decision they make with Pascal is now contingent on the fact Barrett's here no so in my opinion the logjam at forward has somewhat been remedied they've moved one of the UFAs and with quickly in place of OG it makes more sense everything makes more sense and perhaps Barnes and Siakam can better coexist now with a more balanced roster all of which is to say I don't think they have to feel less pressure to move Siakam, especially when all the reporting the whole time has been Pascal Siakam's preference is still to remain in Toronto. So if all of a sudden things actually make more sense around a shared timeline of Siakam and Barnes, and they can at least experiment a little more now and see what works with the, both these guys here, and Pascal Siakam wants to say, heck, maybe you end up able to extend him at a number you're comfortable with whether that's the max or not I don't know but all of a sudden I just don't think it's whereas a few weeks ago I was like look man at some point they're gonna rip this bandit off they can't keep kicking this can down the road now that OG's gone I'm thinking like no I think you can actually kick this can down the road with Siakam especially if this team plays as well as the new roster construction suggests they might be able to I don't think it's all of a sudden a bad thing to extend Siakam, keep him, and then move him later if need be. If not, just try to build around him and Barnes. We'll see. There, there was a couple other things you mentioned too that I thought were points like uh, you talked about quickly unlocking a little bit more of Yaka Pirtle's utility. That to me speaks too, like when I was talking about how even though Quickly's not a pure point guard, he has the requisite secondary playmaking, I think, that fits well beside Scotty Barnes. And I think even the little two-man game you've already seen with Yaka Pirtle is a good example of that. Um the same self-creation issues that I think are now created in New York, I think are helped in Toronto, obviously. Like we talk about the stuff quickly can do and how it matches Barnes. But one thing I'll give RJ is like for all of his struggles, for the limited playmaking vision, in terms of self-creation, ball handling, like the ability to beat a guy off the dribble, he brings way more of that than OG did. And so you combine him and quickly in replacing OG and like, the Raptors now, like, you know, our guy Will Lewis tweeting it the other night, but like, when's the last time the Raptors had lineups with four ball handlers on the court with Yaka Pirtle? It's been a while, and they can do that now. So all of that stuff um, is part of it. And then with respect to Barrett, the one thing I'll say, even though I've been tough on him, I did say this is the quickly trade and he was salary filler. If he can play himself in whatever the role is, if he can just play himself into a role in the Barnes-led future, or even just to a point where he ends up being flipped for surplus value, this trade goes from good to a home run for the Raptors. Yeah, I mean, he's got he's to gotta figure out how to become basically Warriors Wiggins, right? Like that's, to me, it's about trimming the fat from his game, making quicker decisions, kind of stop playing outside of his capabilities and, you know, attacking off of the catch more rather than trying to initiate from a standstill and not driving into crowds and just like, 
being a little bit more decisive and also a little bit maybe more cognizant of his limitations instead of trying to force the issue and do too much. Is Toronto the right context for him to get there? I don't know, but obviously they're hoping that it is. And I, you know, to your point, yeah, I think the ball handling upgrade on OG is considerable and it is important for a team that has been starved for ball handling for the last couple of years. So we'll see. And I also, you know, he wasn't just salary filler. Like you can call this the Emmanuel quickly trade, which I would, but like, if it was just salary filler, it would have been Evan Fournier coming back in right. the deal instead of right. RJ. Barrett, there's, right? there's obvious upside there. Like he's six six two fifteen with good scoring yeah. tools. Now here's my question for you though, Cash, because I don't think there's been any reporting about this. Uh, if there has, I'm not aware of it. So I'm just going to ask you for your opinion, completely uninformed opinion, but like educated guess. Do you think, let's say the Raptors did want it to just be salary filler. And so like they wanted Fournier to be like the ballast in the deal to make it happen. Do you think the Knicks like would have preferred that? Or do you think they wanted to get off of this RJ deal? And they're And that was sort of part of the tax that the Raptors paid in order to get quickly as along with like that second round pick that, as you mentioned, it's a Pistons pick. So it's going to be like 31st or 32nd in the draft as a sweetener. I think hundred percent the Knicks wanted to get off that RJ deal. And again, as I I think it's a combination of one, they wanted to just get off that deal and two to be able to get off that deal. And at the same time, break up the RJ Randall pairing, which I think, you know, as much as like we can go on here and like we can rant about front offices, whatever, like for real, if I'm, you know, for the last two years seeing this and saying this needs to be broken up if they want to win in the big picture and seeing the numbers and those are like a fraction of the amount of information available to actual teams and front offices, for sure they had to know that too. And so I think it was partially they really wanted to get off that deal and also they they knew that to take the next step, they could not be paying both of RJ Barrett and Julius Randle to do what they were doing. Okay, and then other side of it, if you were the Raptors, would you have pushed for the just straight dead salary, but like expiring contract of Fournier instead of taking on the next three years of RJ Barrett. That one's tough. I mean, I, maybe then you try to extract another pick out of them. I would say like, look, if, if, if they could have done that, if it was Fournier and that would have allowed them to extract another pick, is that what you mean? Yeah. Then I would have done that. Yeah. I think that would have been preferable. Yeah. Although I guess the, the counter to that would be like, well, if you're taking the least, if you're taking the less damaging contract in your mind, then why would they also give up an extra first? But I think the, the way I see it is like, but they're also in the terms of Fournier, they're taking back like a nothing in terms of like on core production. Whereas with RJ, there is still that upside there. So yeah, that's if they could have got Fournier, but also gotten an extra pick out of that, I probably would have done that. But mm-hmm. as it was constructed, look, RJ, you know, part salary filler, but there is still that upside. And I'm sure it's only human nature to assume, look, maybe coming home does have some sort of positive. It's not going to completely change who he is as a player, obviously, but I don't know whether you call it motivation, comfort, there might be something there that helps him maybe not reach that all-star upside, but be more comfortable filling a role that's needed as opposed to what he was, you know, in the city that drafted him third overall. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the last point on this, I mean, I talked about OG's next contract with the Knicks, uh, the Raptors were either going to lose him or we're going to have to like fully max him out. Yeah. And so I think this is just 
a much more comfortable spot for them to be in because yes, quickly is going to be a free agent, but he's going to be restricted. The ball will be in Toronto's court. They can match any offer. And also it will depress the market for him, which is a sad reality that I don't like to celebrate Yeah, because it's not player friendly at all. But if you're a team making these decisions, having a player's restricted rights, it's just, it makes it like, not only does it make it easier to retain them, like you just can retain them, but it also like, you see like the last few years, man, like teams don't give out offer sheets. They don't want to have their cap space tied up when they know that the team is going to match anyway. That's how the Lakers got Austin Reeves for like four years, 56 million. Cause no team even bothered putting a max offer sheet in front of him. Even though a max offer sheet to Austin Reeves, who was arenas limited would have been like four years, 98 million or something like that. So this, even if it, even if it works out to it being a max, it's going to be like probably less money than OG winds up making on his next deal. And I think because of Quickly's comparative upside and also just the fit with this Raptors roster, to me, there's a much better chance of him like living up to or outplaying that next contract than would have happened if OG had been maxed out in Toronto. Completely agreed. So yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it in terms of my thoughts on this deal. I think it's win-win. And With respect to the RFA stuff, isn't uh, one of the things in the new CBA is that there's now teams have less time, right? To match the offer. 24 hours. Yeah. Which is, I don't know if you remember when we had this conversation on the pod last year, that was actually one of the things I threw out there is like, this is how it should be. Like teams should have 24 hours. No more of this, like waiting days and one having the team that extended the offer sheets cap space taken up, but also you get to lollygag. No team is willing to give a guy an offer sheet. It should be resolved within 24 hours, both for the player's sake, the team who's actually taking the chance on him's sake, and also like for your own sake. Like, yeah, it's a tough decision. You don't want to have to make it in 24 hours, but so what? Them's the breaks, you know? So I, I like that that period has been reduced. Yeah. I still don't think quickly it's getting signed to an offer sheet this offseason. No, I, I I don't either. I'm not I'm not saying it'll change it for him, but in general, I do like that change. I also agree that I don't think the Raptors should be looking to trade Siakam right now. Like, I would prefer that they extend him. And if they feel like they need to trade him down the road, then go ahead and do that. But I would prefer that they give this a little bit time to breathe and see what they have in this group now that they have an actual lead guard that makes sense. Rather than just, you know, especially because they don't have any incentive to be bad this year. Like, they're not going to keep their pick. Exactly. Top six protected. They're not going to out-tank, like, Detroit, Washington, San Antonio, Charlotte, Portland. I don't think it makes sense. I think it makes more sense for them to like try and chase a playoff spot. And like they can do that with Pascal. It's going to be hard to do that with the reported packages that would be coming back for Pascal. Not to mention the best thing for them would be to relinquish the pick this year in what every expert suggests is a bad draft year, but two, so that they just do not have those draft obligations hanging over their head anymore. Because once it's yeah. conveyed, they then get access to their next couple of years. They can trade the next one already, as opposed to if it hasn't conveyed, they get to wait for two years after the roll, uh, uh, the rolling protections end. So the best thing for the Raptors is for that pick to finish somewhere between 7th to 30th this year. Obviously, closer to 30th would be better, but to be done with it. We almost stuck to the 80-minute uh, limit for ourselves in 2024. So look at us, growth. Well, you're on the edit today, so I'm, I'm counting on you to get it under... Just under that 80-minute mark, even though I think this was a perfect episode as is. Yes. Um, Sure, you can find some fat to trim somewhere. You have a uh, a shout-out for us to open 2024? 
I do have a shout out to Open 2024, and it goes out to Jeff Britton, who reached out to us via email a few weeks back. He said that he felt compelled to let us know how much he enjoys our friendly yet often passionate banter. And Jeff said that after listening to our podcast for a few years, he has developed this pastime where he'll read our articles on the score, I guess without looking at our bylines, even though they're there at the top. He takes pains to to avoid looking at them. Uh, And then he tries to guess just based on the writing who authored the piece. And he can tell us he's almost always right, uh, I guess, our voices in spoken word and in written word convey uh, a certain uniqueness. And um, so that's, that's become a pastime of Jeff's. And that was part of him just basically saying that he enjoys our work uh, podcast and our writing and that we found a very cool niche in an extremely competitive world of NBA podcasting. So I responded to Jeff just to tell him uh, that was one of the nicest emails that we've gotten we both really appreciated it, um, and it's always nice to know that um, that our voice is uh, conveying something specific uh, and something interesting and something unique, whether we're speaking or writing. So that was really nice to hear. Really appreciate it, Jeff. He's listening in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and uh, hope you will keep listening in 2024. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you so much Jeff for the note and for supporting the show as long as you've had and also just for supporting our work in general also on the app hope you're also subscribed to the scores YouTube channel great way to open 2024 with a fan shout out well deserved for Jeff and uh as I've said before we've shouted out a lot of fans but we also know based on our analytics that there are thousands of you out there that have never gotten a shout out so hit us up on social media find us on Twitter find Wolf on at Joey underscore double Y-O-U. You can find me at Joseph Cacharo. Email us joe.wolfond at the score.com joseph.cacharo at the score.com. You can even find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like, maybe what you don't like about the show. And uh, we would love to get you a fan shout out for keeping the show going the way you guys do. So appreciate y'all. Until next time, for Joe Wolfond, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.